team or have a trivia night coming up, do let me know. I'd be keen to join. Geography is a specialty of mine and history, but I, I do like to think I have a broad range of areas I can contribute to. Um, so, yeah, that's a bit of self-promotion. But um, uh, tonight we're getting... Well, I'll get to the real business, which is um, we're here to read God's Word tonight, uh, which is written down for us in the Bible. So uh, please turn to our first reading, which is in Zechariah uh, chapter 9, verses 9 to 10. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now please go to our second reading, which is a bit of a longer one. John chapter 12, verses 1 to 16. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Very good. Who, who actually plays trivia? Uh, they're all blokes. It's a, it was a waste of time. <laughs> Okay, let's let's uh, uh, some news first. Uh, I wanted to uh, let you know that uh, towards the end of last year, November, December, we brought news about our budget. Uh, we were behind budget significantly, about 100 grand, and uh, it was a significant challenge given the times we're in. But just to let you know, we we finished the year having made budget, 
Uh, and so praise God for that. In fact, we're a little bit over. We uh, had about 40 grand over budget. So that's an extraordinary uh, evidence of God's grace amongst you, us, uh, as hearts are really impacted to be generous and just to see that happen. It wasn't just a few people. It was a lot of people who threw in and made a difference. So, so praise God. Uh, without wanting to be a wet blanket, by the end of January, we've used up all that surplus and we're now behind budget. But there you are. So as we go through the year, you'll hear news about that. Uh, we've started a new year and it's important to continue to support the work. But how about I pray? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your goodness evidenced amongst us. We thank you for lives that are being changed uh, people who are being put right side up and um, brought to know life and freedom and goodness in you. We thank you for the many blessings we see amongst us. And we, uh, we thank you for this word, an opportunity to sit around it and wrestle with it. And I would pray for us tonight that by your Holy Spirit, please, you would work through this word to change us, to help us see Jesus as we, as we ought and help us to respond to him as we ought. And we pray it, please, in his name. Amen. Well, there is actually the Bible in a nutshell. It's uh, the, the aim of this account, this uh, little book we're reading, John's Gospel, is to show us Jesus, to present us to us who Jesus is, uh, and to help us, therefore, make sense of how we ought to respond to him. And in fact, that's what it does. As you go through this book, just keep alert to it as you're reading the Bible. Uh, what's it teaching us about Jesus? What are you discovering about the person of Jesus? It is truly confronting. The Bible is not just a nice book, it is uh, monumental in the scale of the things it talks about. The, the sense of what we're in touch with in the Bible is just, it's, um, it lifts you into the heavens and it transforms the whole way you see life because you see Jesus for who he is. It'll show us Jesus, be wrestling with who he is. But as you go through it, it'll be, keep raising for us the question, how do I respond to him? What's, the, what's an appropriate way to respond to him? And this particular part of the Bible we're looking at in John chapter 12 does those two things. It'll confront us with the person of Jesus in extraordinary challenging ways. I want to show us that. But it'll also confront us with how to respond rightly. And so I want to ask you tonight, how have you responded to Jesus? And effectively, I want to, I want to get to the end of tonight and show you there's three, three kind of ways that are revealed in this passage about how to respond to Jesus. Uh, two of them are kind of positive responses, but one very inadequate. And the third one is rejection of Jesus. And I want, amongst us tonight will be all three of those. There'll be some amongst us tonight who are, you're perhaps sitting there, you've been around a little while, but you're going, nah, yeah, nah, it's not for me. Um, I, I hope we can kind of dig into that a little bit tonight. But there'll be others amongst us, the majority amongst us, who have made a response to Jesus. And I want to raise questions for you tonight about uh, what kind of response that is and to think more carefully about the nature of your response. This is what the passage will do for us. So there's the introduction about, well, let me explain how we're going to do it. We'll go through chapter 12. I'm going to try and go through fairly quickly just the text, help you see what's being said in this passage, and then, uh, then pull it all together with three big points, three big um, uh, insights, lessons uh, that come out of this passage, which is where we'll land who Jesus is and how to respond to him. That's where we're going. You're right, you're with me? Let me take you through this passage, John chapter 12. Grab your Bible. Uh, we're going to go verse by verse fairly quickly, all the way through to the uh, entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. So the first verse, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Which connects us, of course, in back into chapter 11, uh, the account of the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. But we're told here that this is now six days before the Passover. 
Now that little word Passover, it's worth just spending a moment on it, it's a hugely significant word, it's a loaded word, full of meaning, uh, loaded before Jesus came along and very much more loaded after Jesus came along. Let me give you, before Jesus, what is the Passover? It's a, it's a word that refers to a festival that Israel, the nation of the Jews, uh, had celebrated for about 1300 years, 1300 years. And it's a, it's a celebration of them having been rescued out of Egypt uh, under Moses, by the mighty hand of God, um, uh, out from under Pharaoh. And I don't assume that everyone knows that event, many of you are new to the things of the Bible, and so let me just give it to you. 1300 BC, Israel's in slavery under Egypt. Egypt was the great superpower. You wouldn't, it's interesting how the world changes, doesn't it? Uh, it, was the, it was the America of the ancient world, although America seems to be on the slide as well, but it, you know, it was the great superpower. And um, they had uh, imprisoned Israel, the Jewish people, under uh, their thumb for some three, four hundred years. And uh, they cried out to God, God determined to rescue them. And he brought a series of plagues against Egypt. There were 10 of them. The last one was devastating. Um, it was death to the various families, except for this. The, the last plague would kill people in your family unless, see, God provided a way out, unless you slaughtered a lamb and spread its blood and sprinkled that blood over the doorposts of your house. And God promised that anyone who has the blood of the lamb over the doorposts, he will pass over. His judgment will pass over that house and the house will be safe because of the blood of the Lamb. And, um, and that is exactly what happened. Uh, uh, Egypt wasn't safe because they refused to heed God's word, but Israel were and Israel was then driven out of Egypt and freed. And they were brought to Mount Sinai where they were constituted as a people, as God's great special nation, His chosen people. And so God then said, for every year annually, you're to remember this great saving event the Passover event, you see, and so they did for centuries. Now, it used to happen in their homes, uh, but then as they got settled into the land of, in that Palestine-Israel area, uh, it was centred on Jerusalem. So there'd still be a meal, of course, in the homes, but the Passover lamb would be slaughtered in Jerusalem and um, thousands of Israelites would flock up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. It went for a week, seven days, where they'd go to get cleansing, uh, they'd buy sacrifices, they'd participate in then the great Passover sacrifice that happened at the end of the week. Um, so six days before that, you see, the beginning of the Passover festival, but six days before the slaughter of the lambs at the end of the week, um, six days before that event. Now, hugely important event in their history, uh, but now given Jesus' death and resurrection, that language of Passover for us as we read this account is, has got a whole nother meaning. Because what John's telling us is, it's six days before Jesus is crucified. Because he is crucified when the lambs are being slaughtered. He is the great Lamb of God, who was slaughtered to ensure that God's judgment passes over all those who sit under the blood of Jesus, do you see? And fulfills that great festival. So six days before, that means Friday, Jesus is crucified on Friday, the lamb's probably Thursday night and so on. Um, we're looking at probably, this is about Saturday evening after sundown, uh, John chapter 12, verse 1. Um, now, there was a dinner, verse 2. Here, is, here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Uh, Lazarus was there, the Lazarus who's been raised from the dead. 
Uh, Jesus is the guest of honour, unsurprisingly, given the things he has done. And uh, this is not the only account that speaks of this event. You can actually chase up in Mark's Gospel and Matthew's Gospel, independent accounts that record the same event. Um, now, Luke's, Luke's account has a kind of thing similar to this, but it's probably much earlier in Jesus' ministry. It was another occasion. But Matthew and Mark are the same. And when you go to those places, you find a little bit more information, such as the fact that the home that it happens is is very likely a man called Simon, who was a leper, uh, but had been healed by Jesus. Now, at verse 3, at this event, so we're trying to move through the passage, at, at 3, at this event, Mary, uh, one of the, the sister of Lazarus, uh, whose sister Martha was also there, Mary takes a jar of perfume, a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, pours it on... Well, the other accounts tell us that she broke the jar over Jesus, but now it's pouring down onto his feet and she wipes his feet with her hair. Um, And the house is filled with the fragrance of this experience. Now, do you remember how I started tonight? Um, The Bible, John's Gospel, is wanting to present us the person of Jesus, the monumental nature and character of who Jesus is, and how to respond to him. Well, what you have here is the first, one of the instances of how to respond to Jesus. Here is Mary... Now, Mary has been around Jesus for quite some time because this, this, this family was loved by Jesus. They've, she has been with him, with her family, seeing the signs that he's done, the teaching that he's done, the extraordinary character of this man. She already calls him Lord when he came to heal and raise Lazarus. She was already calling him Rabbi and Lord. Um, she realises that in him is life. He, he is the life of humanity. And now um, Mary has experienced this Jesus raising her brother to life after being four days dead in a tomb. Wow. Grief turned to gladness by the power of a man who just speaks a word. She is in awe of Jesus and full of thanks. She would do anything to honour him, no matter the cost. And this perfume that she breaks on Jesus is a family heirloom which is probably well we're told it's a year's wage let's call that about fifty thousand dollars is extraordinarily expensive amount that's been poured out however it triggers a reaction verse four but one of the disciples Judas Iscariot who was later to betray him objected why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor it was worth a year's wages. So we get Mary showing us how to respond with utter devotion. But now we have almost the complete opposite, Judas, who says what appears to have merit, a critique. Why, why wasn't this money, this, this perfume sold to make $50,000, which we could have used to feed dozens, scores of families who were starving around us? Now, that does seem to have some merit, doesn't it? Pour out $50,000 of smelly stuff on Jesus to make him smell nice for a little while. Or $50,000 to feed starving families. And Judas raises this question. Really, Jesus? When we could have with that... 
Now, before we go too far down this path of wondering about which is best really, John, the author who was there, tells us what he found out later. He didn't know it at the time, but verse 6, he realises in hindsight that that Judas didn't say this because he cared about the poor, actually, but because he was a thief and the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. He was wanting the money, the perfume to be sold, so there's more money in the money bag so that he could help himself to more money. It, It looked good, his critique superficially it it kind of had rational logic sense to it and it was kind of compelling but when you dug beneath it you found out really what was driving his critique was not concern for the poor he just looked like he had that it was really about self-interest which is an extraordinary warning about hidden motivation we'll come back to that in a moment Jesus then steps in verse 7 leave her alone Jesus replied and says two shocking statements it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. It was intended by whom? And then, verse 8, more shockingly, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, the next day, verse 12, great crowds were going up into Jerusalem in preparation for this festival, the cleansings and so on. And they heard that Jesus was on his way up into Jerusalem and because a great, great number of people have now heard news about Lazarus and the signs that Jesus has done, there's a huge following that's being captivated by Jesus. And um, so they took palm branches, verse 13, and sang as they came up into Jerusalem and they sang using the words of Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, Hosanna means save Lord. So, save Lord, blessed is the one who... Now, they used to sing this song regularly as they came up in Jerusalem. This was, history tells us this was a common thing uh, as they came into festivals. And effectively what they were saying is, blessed are you around me who comes up in the name of the Lord to this festival, you see. Uh, so, they were sort of encouraging one another as they came up. Um, waving palm fronds, which I think I drew attention last week to the fact that it's their national pride symbol. It's their boxing kangaroo Uh, you know, waving the boxing kangaroo, because this event, the Passover, is a great moment of nationalistic fervour. See, we're the chosen people of God. And the Passover says we were chosen by God and we're under Rome. And so there's this kind of, at the same time, celebrating rescue out of Egypt is a, how come we're still under Rome? And so there's this heightened energy around, we need to be free. And what you have here is a crowd of people who want to be free, who are, who are right at the time in their nation's annual calendar where there's lots of talk about needing to be free and they've now found a man who qualifies to be their king. Blessed is the king of Israel. They add this to the song because they've found Jesus who is to them the one who fulfills all their hopes of bringing a king to free them from all their political rulers. And so what you have is revolution in the air. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at um, John's Gospel, with, or last week, with um, the high priest and te- the, the Sanhedrin was saying, if we let Jesus keep going, then everyone will go after him and uh, Rome will be afraid and come and crush us. Well, that's what's, that's what's happening here. But to anticipate... They praise Jesus, they walk with Jesus, they're celebrating him coming up into the city but in a couple of days' time, according to the other gospel accounts, 
when Jesus was on trial, when he had failed to live up to their hype as the great king who would free them from Rome, they turned on him. Pilate said, whom shall I release? Barabbas, this terrorist, or Jesus? They said, Barabbas. They turned on Jesus and shouted, crucify him. They were fickle. They thought he was one thing, he turned out to be another and they dumped him. Now they should have known that he wasn't what they were hoping for, some great warrior king, because of Jesus' own actions, verse 14. As they were all going up into the city, Jesus found a young donkey. And the other accounts tell us that there was quite a, he sent disciples to find, it was quite a deliberate act to get this donkey and he sat on it and rode up into Jerusalem. Now I don't know, have you ever ridden horses? I hate horses, but <laughs> donkeys and horses, which is more glamorous and exciting? You know, which kind of gives you prestige and significance, do you see? Um, do you want to ride a horse in the dressage in the Olympics or a donkey? You know, is that kind of sense of things. So Jesus doesn't choose to ride up on a great war horse, he chooses to ride up on a donkey, where his feet probably dragged along the ground as they went up, you see. And it's him saying something, he's triggering something, which wasn't immediately obvious at the time. We'll come back to this. Now, there's the, there's the events. You see, we've gone through uh, these accounts very quickly. Um, but here's, what I want to do now is kind of land it all with us with three observations about the lessons from this. I mean, what do you do? What do you learn from this? I'll give you three things. First one is this. And we're going we're gonna to come in the third one to us. All right, so... What do we learn? First thing, there is more to life than meets the eye. There's more to this event than meets the eye and there's more to life than meets the eye. There are depths here. John is a very clever author. He had a long time to think about it. He was the oldest to die, latest to die, the ones who were there and saw it all. But of course, he had great material to work with. And he reports the events, he reports what actually happened, but he, packaged, he puts it together and makes little comments to help you see and get inside. Incredibly clever. And it's very obvious at verse 16 that there's more to this event than meets the eye. Look at verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this, that Jesus found a donkey to ride on up into Jerusalem. At first, the disciples didn't understand this. It was only after he was glorified did they realise that these things in Zechariah chapter 9, that's where it comes from, it was only afterwards they realised that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. There is much more to this event than meets the eye. You see, Jesus knew what was happening. He got the donkey. But they didn't have a clue. He comes as their king, yes. But he comes as a king like they've never seen before. He knew the prophecy from ancient times, from the book of Zechariah. Now, I think you guys can cope. We didn't do this in the morning because they're, they're sluggish and slow. But you, are, Let's go and look at Zechariah. Come back with me to Zechariah chapter 9. What can you do with old people? Zechariah 9. Have a look there at verse 9. Grab your Bibles. Come on back. Now, Zechariah has written many, many centuries before the events of Jesus, but it's a prophecy. Verse 9, rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion, that's Israel, shout, daughters of Jerusalem, 
See, your king comes to you. Your king is coming. Righteous and victorious, but get this, lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the baby of a donkey, not the war horse. And verse 10, when he comes, he'll take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He'll proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Verse 11, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pits. Now you think about that prophecy, anticipating what comes into the future and what it tells us is a bunch of things, that yes, a king will come, a king who would rule not just the nation of Israel but the whole world. Israel will rise rise up a king to rule all of humanity. But he will rule as a gentle king, lowly, humble. And he will bring an end to war, he won't create war. He'll bring peace to the nations. And all of this will be associated with his blood, the blood of the covenant. You see, Israel hadn't remembered Zechariah chapter 9. They were waiting for a king who would rule and free them and they were looking forward to the lion of the tribe of Judah coming. But Jesus comes to be the king who is the lamb, who will give himself over to death by shedding his blood as the Passover lamb, who will die as a substitute in the place of sinful men and women to save us from our enemies, which aren't political, far deeper that you can't actually see with your eyes. He comes to rescue us from the enemies of sin and Satan and death, which is only possible by his death, the blood of the covenant. You see, John tells you there's two stories going on here. There's the story the people thought was happening and there's the true story, the Jesus one. And all the way through John's Gospel, he keeps alerting us to the fact that there's more going on than you can see. All the way back in John chapter 2, Jesus talks about the temple being destroyed and and John has to drop a little note and says, he wasn't talking about what everyone thought he was talking about. And you get here, John 12 verse 16, they didn't understand this, it was only after they realised. But you also get it earlier, chapter 12 verse 7, listen again to this. Leave her alone, Jesus replied, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Why are you, Jesus, why are you talking about your burial? This is the time when you're triumphantly coming up in Jerusalem to be the king of Israel, to be the great ruler over all people. You're going to conquer, you're going to defeat. What are you talking about dying for? You're the great son of God, you come to rule. But Jesus alone knew that he actually came to die and by dying, conquering. But no one else had a clue. Friends, it is impossible to understand the Bible and it's impossible to understand Christianity if you don't appreciate how central the death of Jesus is to it all. Everything hangs on him dying. 
We've got this book called John's Gospel, it's got 21 chapters in it. But look at this, we're up to chapter 12, halfway through the book and it's now six days before his death. The, The second half of the book is all about the last week of his life. The first half was his whole life up to that point, now we're just, the whole thing is about his death. All of that was lead up. You can't understand Christianity unless you understand the fact that it's about his death. Everything hangs on him dying as a substitute. He knows that. He's, he was born to die. It was his purpose, but no one else had a clue until afterwards. Do you know what? We've been reading a book this week, another book, talking about books. I've been reading a book with a bunch of friends uh, called Knowing God by a man called J.I. Packer. Great book if you can chase it down and read it. And um, Packer makes this observation where he says, it's not actually a surprise that Jesus rises to life again because he is life. He is in himself life. You can't put him down. He's the God of life, you see. It's not a surprise that he rises again from the grave. What is a surprise? Is that the immortal God should die, should, should come and die on a cross. That's the central truth of Christianity. The blood shed by God himself, Acts chapter 20, it's an astonishing thing to say. Um, Jesus' death is the reason he came, because in his death and resurrection, I mean the two are tied together, the resurrection consummates the death, it's what's necessary, follows, that's the victory of his death, but he comes to die to save us by dying as a substitute. He conquers sin, Satan and death and that's his glory. Next week, we'll look at it. Jesus at the table knew what was coming, the people had no clue, Mary had no clue and that's the point of it was intended. Verse 7, leave her alone, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial, this heirloom should be used for my anointing for my death. Who intended it? It was intended by Mary? No, she had no clue. Who intended it? God. God the Father prepares His Son for that great moment in history with the most precious, expensive perfume that's worthy of the one who is about to die to save humanity. God intended that his son would be treasured in that moment, though no one else had a clue. The heavens saw it. You see, there's more going on here than meets the eye. Now, that's particularly true of this event, the cross of Christ. It's the greatest event in human history. It's planned from the beginning of time, the death of the Passover land, to fulfil all the Passover experience. God was at work in ways no human eye could see or understand. It's very particularly true of that event, but I want to actually just generalise and broaden it a little bit. It's also true of our experience of life today. It's true of all of human history, that there's more going on than you can see. You see, what do you see? Well, what you see is a bunch of young people studying, working, trying to get on, working out whether to date, not to date, um, thinking about how to use your weekend, what fun to have, what leisure, what am I going to do with the future, working all this kind of stuff, older people who are working in and out, in and out, only got weekends free and all, you know, raising kids, you see all of this stuff going on, all of which is good and fine and appropriate and so on, but under all of that and behind all of that is God at work towards his great plan and you know what his great plan is? To seek and save the lost. Everything is working towards that end. That God might save his world from dying under his righteous judgment. While we're busy doing all the things that we can see, travelling and sport and leisure and so on, God is at work 
moving everything to his great purpose of redeeming the world in Christ, that we might be saved. And friends, tonight, there's lots of good things that you are... Love your family, get a job, all good things, enjoy leisure, nothing wrong, but none of it matters compared to God's great work of saving the world. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life just living for what's seen, like everyone around us who's got no idea is doing. Don't be like people who are in the dark, who don't actually see the bigger things going on and just do what everyone else is doing. Paul in the book of Ephesians says repeatedly, don't live like foolish pagans. You know what's happening. You know God's great purposes. Participate in them and give yourself to that which matters. There's the first thing. There's more going on in life than meets the eye. There's more going on in the Jesus event than meets the eye. Let me give you the second. It's the exaltation of Jesus. This whole account, and in fact the whole Bible, centres on Jesus. Everyone else in the events are just extras. At the very centre is the person of Jesus. He alone knows what's happening. He gets the donkey. And there's this pathos about Jesus. He knows. He knows what's happening. And he sets his face to Jerusalem, knowing what it will mean for him, while no one around him has a clue. There's a greatness to the Lord Jesus. Knowing that he is heading to the place of the cross where it won't just be death, but it'll be death under the judgment and curse of God for all our sin, to bear the whirlwind of God's judgment upon that. He heads towards the cross with his eyes fully open and he strides to that place. Nothing can stop him. The greatness of this one. He knows he'll be betrayed, but he presses on because of his love for us and his Father. And there's a great self-awareness of Jesus. Jesus has this self-awareness of his own greatness. The perfume moment. This perfume, this $50,000 worth of perfumes poured all over Jesus. Could have been used for the poor. And he says, the critique comes and he says, leave her alone. I am worthy of this extravagant moment. Now, I don't know if you picked it up through the week as you've read this or if you're listening tonight. There is something disturbing about that moment and you need to appreciate this. There's something disturbing about the words of Jesus. Why might someone find it disturbing that Jesus says, you will always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me? Do you find that disturbing? You won't have me for very long. Why, why might it be disturbing for people? Sit with it. See, here's the danger in Bible reading. If you're a Christian... One of the dangers in Bible reading is you just assume Jesus is going to say great things and so you don't even actually interrogate it to see whether it's kind of a bit weird. You go, oh, he must be saying something great and you just move on. No, interrogate this thing. The poor you'll always have but you won't have me very long so spend the 50 grand on me. What, what is wrong with that statement? It's the arrogance of the man. Who does he think he is? He has placed himself above the needs of scores of poor people. Who does that? You know, um, think with me, I don't know if you know, does anyone know who's our Prime Minister at the moment? 
man killed Albanese, right? So we, we used to have Scott Morrison, right? So just, just to avoid looking political at this point, right? But just imagine either Albanese or Scott Morrison, Prime Minister of Israel, w- w- was, is. It, it, um, now imagine one of them. Um, someone comes along and says, look, I've got a million bucks and I just want to shower this on you to have a good time. I want you to go and splurge and spend up and enjoy yourself. Um, go for it. And someone else goes, the media goes, well, are you going to, Albanese, are you going to take that and just spend it on yourself? What about all the poor people? What kind of man are you? Now, how would you react to Albanese if you did take that money? And in fact, how would you react to him if you said this? The critique comes... You're spending it all on yourself, this gift that you've been given. Why don't you give it away to actually help poor people? And he says, poor people you'll always have, but I won't be here very long. <laughs> oh, yeah, so you got it. Is that not sick? Is there not an arrogance, an extraordinary weirdness there? But Jesus said it. Jesus said exactly the same words. Why don't we find it problematic? Well, I've been talking to people about this and thinking about this for many, many long, long time and um, here's, here's what I've got up with. Why isn't it sick and offensive of Jesus to say it? Four reasons. Because he is God. He is God. The Word was with God, the Word was God and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. He is the incarnate God of the universe. He is unlike any other human, God. Second, he is not just a God who lies back in his armchair and absorbs all our beautiful things and lives for himself. No, no, no. He's a servant God. He's a God who gives up his life to save poor people and rich people, us. He is about to die the most horrific death where he gives up all that he has for the sake of sinners. There's why it's appropriate for him to speak like this. He is about to die a death to save humanity and God his Father intends to honour him at that moment. Third, the problem of poverty and physical poverty is nothing compared to the problem of spiritual poverty. We've got to get hold of this. The problem of actually one day standing before God spiritually impoverished with no one to save us, that is an eternal death. Uh, that is in ex- that's horrifying. Physical poverty is a small thing compared to that. Fourth, loving God is the higher calling. And I want to spend a moment here because this is massive. Love of God is the higher calling even over love of neighbour. You might remember that Jesus was asked once, what are the great commandments, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, there's two great commandments. He says, the first and greatest is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbour as yourself. He says, there are two great commandments, but he puts the first as the greatest, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. And what you have here is Jesus affirming again that to love him with an unadulterated, devotion that pours out everything for him is the higher calling, higher even than the love of neighbour. Why? Because he is our God, the giver of all things, the maker of all things, the one from whom and through whom and for whom and to whom all things exist. And because 
all other loves flow from him. He is effectively saying, Mary got it right, that the love of me is greater even than the love of neighbour. Do you see here what Jesus is claiming about himself? No one who, no one who is sane has ever talked like this. Jesus is God amongst us. So now we come to the third. First, there's more going on here than meets the eye. There's more in life than meets the eye. Second, the exaltation of Jesus, the extraordinary insight into who he is. Third, what about us? How do we respond? I said at the beginning there are woven through this three different ways of responding to Jesus. There are three different people you actually meet through this episode. Um, There are two who embrace Jesus, one who rejects Jesus. Judas, of course, is the one who rejects Jesus. Um, He has seen all that Jesus has done. He's been with the disciples. He's heard the claims that Jesus makes. But I dare say what he's done at this point is gone, you've just gone too far, Jesus. You've gone too far. And it's actually the other accounts that tell us this is the moment where Judas decides to betray Jesus. He leaves the room, the dinner, and talks to the religious rulers to now betray him. It's too much. But what's, you know, that's terrible. But what's terrifying is the thing that drives him to reject Jesus. And here is a profound insight the Bible gives us. His critique of Jesus has the appearance of rational and reasonable. Surely this would be better to give to the poor... Um, surely we're better off giving all this money to the poor, not honouring you in your death. Surely it has the, has the appearance of rational reason. And, um, and, and, um, uh, but beneath, beneath what looks rational and reasonable is a man who is hiding his own stuff. And here's a great insight into humanity. Judas responds to Jesus in a way that looks reasonable, but really what's going on is he's got a self-motivated agenda. And Jesus says that's the way humans are all the time. No one comes to him purely objectively. Because to come to Jesus means giving up my life and bowing the knee and having him as my Lord. I can't be objective about that because it's going to impact my whole life. And so he says in John chapter 3, he says, you know the reason people don't come to me? It's not because there's not enough evidence. It's because they don't want what they'll get. If they come to me, they'll be brought into the light because I am the light. They'll be brought into light and their life will be exposed for what it is. And their deeds are evil. They want to live the way they want to live and they don't want to have it exposed and seen for what it is. And so they keep away from Jesus. Wow. No one has been purely objective about Jesus because it impacts our hearts, our lives, our everything. So friends, if you are here tonight thinking there's just not enough evidence and you're not sure, you don't, you don't want to follow this Jesus because you, all these people have been conned, just search your heart. Consider for a moment that perhaps there's more going on for you than purely an objective assessment. You know, I, over the years I've t- talked to people about these things a lot and... Um, uh, I, I've often had people say, not enough evidence, not enough evidence. And, um, and one of the ways to assess whether really it's about the evidence or really it's about you is just a simple question. If I could prove to you beyond doubt that Jesus is who he says he is, would you bow the knee to him and live 
under him as your ruler? There's the question. And you know what most people say? Oh, that's an interesting question. Very few people say yes. Why? Because it's not really about the evidence. It's actually about a life that doesn't want to live under the authority of Jesus, which then finds reasons to make it seem like I'm doing a reasonable, rational thing by rejecting him. And there'll be lots of people in churches all across the land who are sitting in church one day, who will disappear from church and they'll make all kinds of reasonable... You know, the reason I did it, because church is so horrible, because there's not... Because there'll be all kinds, but really, at heart, what it'll be is because that person wanted to live a life outside of Jesus' will. They wanted to live a life under their own rule, not his rule. Judas helps us see beneath the surface that there's often more going on. There's the rejection of Jesus. But there are two who receive Jesus, embrace him, and they're very different. Mary, who gave everything to Jesus, and the crowd, who were fickle. And I want to offer this analysis as we finish up, and um, I'm sorry to kind of land this on you as a whole new idea, but let me try and do, so spark up, concentrate, I want to give you a whole big new idea. I want to tell you the difference between the crowd and Mary. What, both of them responded positively towards Jesus, many amongst you responding positively towards Jesus, but I'll say there'll be a difference between us, and here it is. Mary responded to Jesus with this statement, I am his... The crowd responded to Jesus by saying, he is mine. Do you see the difference? It's a world of difference. Mary said, I am his. Uh, I am captured by him. I belong to him. Where he goes, I'll go. Whatever happens to him, I'll be with him. He, I belong to him. And you know, Mary was the one, even though Jesus went to the cross and she didn't understand it, she stuck with Jesus. She watched the cross. She went to the tomb. She followed. She kept with Jesus because she was captured by Jesus. Whatever happened to Jesus, she was with Jesus. But the crowd, the crowd, their slogan was, he is mine. I will be with Jesus whilst ever he does what I want him to do. He, he belongs to me. And I'll follow him when he suits me, but when he doesn't suit me, I'm going to drop him and dump him. They only follow while he said things that they agreed with and did things that they were happy to have happen. So whilst they thought he was going to be the great warrior king who would free them from Rome, they were all for Jesus. Jesus is mine. But then when he went to the cross defeating a different enemy, they dumped him. And the question for us tonight is, which are you? Which are you? Are you Mary? I belong to Jesus wherever he takes me. Or are you the crowd? Jesus belongs to me and I'll be with him whilst ever he fits into my life. Which are you? Are you the person who will follow Jesus whilst ever the way he thinks about the world and issues in the world fit with the way I think? You'll stick with Jesus. You know, there's a man called Tim Keller who uh, has written lots of books and so on. He's an American pastor. He, he, he coined the phrase, defeater believes, defeater believes. 
And what he means by that is that there's a set of beliefs that people hold that if you, if you go against their beliefs, it defeats their interest in Christianity. So, so they have a certain set of beliefs about men and women, gender, race, environment, various causes, progressive, conservative. They have a set of beliefs. And um, uh, if, if they find out that Jesus and Christianity actually disagree with those beliefs, it defeats their interest in Jesus. Have you got defeated beliefs? I'll follow Jesus as long as he thinks like I do about feminism. I'll follow Jesus as long as he thinks like I do about race and racism. Well, whatever it is, I mean, it doesn't matter. I'll follow Jesus as long as he agrees with me on whatever the thing is you hold very dear. Mary just said, whatever you think, I'll bow the knee to. Because you're God, I'm not. And you're the loving God, who is the life-giving God, who is the God who is dying for me. I'll follow you wherever you take me. And brothers and sisters, that's our only hope through the next 30, 40, 50 years, as long as the Lord gives you to persevere, is that you actually come to terms with the fact that you need to be possessed by Him. He needs to control your heart and mind. Whatever you find difficult about Jesus, you need to come to Him and be brought to bear with what he teaches. If you continue to act like the crowd that he belongs to you, you'll go. And this is eternity at stake. What is Jesus to you? Are you his or is he yours? Let me give you a chance to reflect on those things now. We're going to sing in a moment, but I'm going to invite the band up and just give you a moment to sit with that. Just... Yeah, how do I think about Jesus? If I were to find that he believed something counter to my, would I continue to be with him? Am I thinking about my future with Jesus running it or with me doing what I want with him along for the... Jesus is mine or I am Jesus's? Which is it? Let me pray.